So, hey, I was a child of the 80s, um, 70s and 80s, and then kind of 90s in college. But um, during the 80s, I started watching Saturday Night Live. And so what would happen is my high school buddies and I would get together and we would watch. You know, these were during the days of Adam Sandler and Chris Farley, you know, 80s. And uh, one of the skits that was really popular during the mid-80s was a skit called Church Chat. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with Church Chat, but the character in Church Chat was played by Dana Carvey, and her name, she was the church lady. So here's a picture of her right here. And she had all these little taglines, isn't that special? And, you know, all these little things. Anyway, but the gist of the show is that Dana Carvey would interview, uh, you know, famous people that had usually gotten into some sort of trouble publicly, and then on her show, she would uh, sort of begin to sort of dig into their life and then highlight their sins. And she would always call them a sinner anyway. And uh, so what's interesting is this ran, it ran for probably five years, and then they've done it periodically over the, you know, even the last few years, he's popped up every now and then to play this character because it's a kind of a timeless character. And what Dana Carvey said is he said, I modeled this character after the women in the church where I grew up because they would always sort of keep track of whether or not I was in attendance and whether or not I was behaving well and whether or not I was sinning, Right. And so he grew up in a church where he conceived of sin as breaking the rules, right? Breaking the rules. And that's frankly the way that most of us probably think about sin as well, that sin is breaking the rules. And to some degree, it is. We shouldn't lie. We shouldn't steal. We shouldn't murder. You know, we should not break those rules. I think we can agree on those things. I think we can also agree, however, that it goes a little bit deeper than just not breaking the rules. But let me, let me jump in really quickly, and I'm going to read a couple of different definitions of sin and maybe add some nuance to this. And, and let me just begin by saying we're entering into a four-week series on sin. And so my hope is that we can sort of just look at sin from these various angles. And again, some of you, even as I'm saying this word sin, you're probably sort of even checked out a little bit. But bear with me, and let's dig into the nuance of this concept a little bit. So here's what the Westminster Confession has to say about sin. It asks the question, this is the shorter catechism, what is sin, right? And then it answers, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In other words, sin is either something that is something you commit or it's something that you omit, something you do or something you don't do, right? Good, but I think we would all agree that that's not exactly complete, right? It's not sin in its entirety. The ESV study Bible defines sin as this. It says sin is anything, whether in thoughts, actions, or attitudes, that does not express or conform to the holy character of God expressed in his moral law. Again, thoughts, attitudes, actions. Again, these are good definitions, but they're not complete. Let's go a little further. Uh, professor of philosophy at Notre Dame, Alvin Plantinga, he was actually uh, the, one of my buddies who is a prof- uh, philosophy professor now. He was one of his um, professors there said this about sin. He said, sin is treating yourself as your own first cause and God, therefore, as an accessory. In other words, the world is really about me and God is my genie in a lamp and I use him in order to get what I want and to avoid what I don't want. It's a good definition, a little nuanced. C.S. Lewis, I think we can agree that C.S. Lewis was a brilliant thinker about these things. Here's what he had to say. He said, when Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God, 
And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There's no such thing, right? So again, you can kind of tell that we're getting deeper and deeper and deeper down into this concept of sin to where C.S. Lewis begins to get really close to what sin is. So sin, it is breaking God's law, right? That's true. It's being unloving towards God, using him, and it's being unloving to our fellow man, right? Using them for our ends. Sin is also uh, using God as that genie in the lamp or seeking, it's either even seeking fulfillment apart from him, right? That's part of what C.S. Lewis was getting into. So there's a sense in which sin is, is this relational brokenness between us and God and us and our fellow men. There's a sense in which as I entered into this discussion though, the deeper question uh, for me was where does sin come from? What's the origin of sin in us? What is it? What is its ontological state? Charles Reary, a systematic professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, has this to say about what we might call the sinful nature, this thing in us that, uh, that is energy that causes us to sin. Here's what he says. Proof of the sin nature abounds. No one has to teach a child to lie or be selfish. Parents, I think we can agree on that. Rather, we go to great lengths to teach children to tell the truth and to put others first. Sinful behavior uh, comes naturally. The news is filled with tragic examples of mankind acting badly. Wherever people are, there is trouble. Charles Spurgeon said, as the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived, right? It's, it's just throughout every atom of our being, seeking to create chaos, seeking to harm us. He goes on to say, the sin nature is universal in humanity. It doesn't skip over some people here and there. All of us have a sinful nature, and it affects every part of us. This is the doctrine of total depravity, is what the theologians have called it, and it is biblical. All of us have gone astray, Isaiah 53, 6. Paul admits that the trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. Paul was in his sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Solomon concurs. Indeed, there's no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. The apostle John perhaps puts it most bluntly, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so what we discover about this thing that we now call sin or maybe the sinful nature within us is that we're not sinners because we sin, rather we sin because we are sinners. That sin is this, is this energy, it's active within us, and it seeks ultimately to destroy us. Again, over the next four weeks, we'll be looking at this idea and many of these different facets of sin. And today we're going to begin by looking at one particular aspect of sin. But before we begin, let me uh, invite us to pray. Father, we thank you very much for bringing us here today. And Father, I thank you that like a, a good doctor, that you are willing to tell us the bad news in order that you might tell us the good news. And so, Father, I pray today that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear this bad news, and that this bad news would then drive us to trust in you as our Father 
and your son Jesus as our Savior. Father, we pray all these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So my family could probably tell you um, the type of shows I like to watch on Netflix or Amazon Prime, and um, it's, some of them would be embarrassing. But one of the things that I really do like to watch are nature documentaries, right? So you go under the documentary section way at the bottom of Netflix, and you work your way over, and you find, you know, the one with the swordfish and the school of fish. I'm, I'm watching it. Love that stuff. You know what I mean? The bear eating salmon. I'm all over it. Anyway, love those documentaries. Well, <clears throat> not too long ago, I was watching a documentary, and uh, this documentary begins um, with this humpback mother, humpback whale mother, and a calf, and they're making their way across the Pacific. And it's sort of this beautiful, you know, calm scene where they're making their way through this blue, beautiful water. And all of a sudden, the shot zooms out, and about a quarter of a mile behind them is a pod of killer whales. And it's basically that these killer whales have uh, heard the mother humpback whale and the, and the calf, and they are pursuing this mother and this calf. And so they get closer, and they get closer, and they get closer, and it's a pod of probably five or six killer whales. And what happens is they surround this mother humpback whale, which she is, you know, six to ten times their size, but the calf is about the same size as the killer whales. And uh, what they're trying to do is they're trying to separate the calf from its mother. And so they, they swim in between it and its mother, and once they separate it from its mother, they begin to ram this calf, this humpback whale calf. They try to make it so it can't breathe, and uh, they push it constantly away from its mother, and what happens is the documentary then tells you they're not, they're not biting this uh, calf in order to tear it to pieces yet. But what they're doing is they're trying to separate it from its mom, and then they lay on top of this, um, this humpback whale calf in order to try to drown it. And so this battle sort of ensues, and you're watching this drama unfold in front of you. And the whole time, you're like, what is going to happen? The mom is sort of trying to defend her calf. She's you know, got these huge flukes and she's flip, these flippers, and she's trying to use her body weight to scare off the killer whales, but they keep, you know, hitting this little calf, and they keep separating the calf, and they keep laying on the calf. And then finally what the mother does is the mother actually swims underneath the calf, so the calf's body weight is on top of her, right? And then the drama continues to unfold as they seek to separate her from her calf. But it's this really interesting picture. And I remember as I watched this, I remember thinking, what an interesting picture of sin, right? That sin seeks to separate us from those that would protect us. That sin seeks to harm us. Sin seeks to drown us and devour us. That's definitely one of the aspects of sin, right? This energy, this thing within us that it seeks to destroy us. Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 through 7, uh, begin to sort of talk about sin. Now, within Genesis, we've already seen the effects of sin and even the temptations of sin as Satan employs some of these tactics with Adam and Eve. But in verses 2 through 7, we hear what God has to say about sin. So if you will, follow along with me, uh, Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 through 7. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil, right? So you guys are maybe familiar with Adam and Eve's two of their children, Cain and Abel. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. Okay, let's pause there for one second. So here are Cain and Abel, and they both are bringing an offering to the Lord. Now, many of us, when we think about offerings from the Old Testament, we think about sin offerings, right? And we think it has to be sort of a, you know, killing an animal to, you know, to symbolize sort of propitiation uh, with God. 
But the truth is there were other types of offerings, and this wasn't a sin offering. This was what's called a dedication offering. And so really what Cain and Abel were doing was absolutely appropriate. They were bringing and dedicating part of their work and offering it to the Lord, right? But what we see here is that there's something wrong. And so here's uh, what I think we can draw from this. It's what the, most of the theologians draw out of this, is that Cain essentially brought some, while Abel brought the fat portions and the firstborn, right? And so what this means is that Cain brought something, while Abel brought his best thing, right? That was the moment at which God became displeased. The Lord, we see here, looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you not, do not do what is right, and listen, this is, this is where we get a description of sin. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. What do we see about sin in this passage? And what do we see about the nature of sin throughout Scripture? What we're going to talk about today is that sin is a powerful and subtle predator. It isolates us and then destroys us. So sin is a powerful and subtle predator that isolates us and then destroys us. Let's just take a moment and just look at the concept of sin as a predator. Okay, we look back at verse 7. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. This word for crouch here is a word that was, would have been used to describe lions and leopards and tigers, right? And so clearly what the imagery here is, it's pretty clear, it's that sin is this active entity and it is like a predator lying in wait to attack you when you least expect it. Now, I've got a little bit of a disturbing video that I'm going to show you here, but I think you're mature enough to handle it, but it's going to illustrate uh, sort of this picture of sin crouching as a predator. So Jack, if I can get you to go ahead and show the clip. All right, that's good. So again, no, uh, no uh, animals or children were hurt in the filming of that. Docu- that was another little documentary. Anyway, so obviously that's a cute little video. Um, but what it seeks to, uh, to sort of um, illustrate is what God is saying in this passage is that sin is active and it seeks to ambush and hunt us, especially when we least expect it in ways that we least expect it. There's a man named Gordon MacDonald who wrote a book called Ordering Your Private World. I read it as a freshman when I got to Covenant College, and I remember being really impressed with the book. I, am, I was uh, one of the most disorganized humans that God has ever created, and so Ordering Your Private World was great for me. It was a little bit of a breath of fresh air, and as I read this book as a freshman, I was just really struck by the wisdom of this man, Gordon MacDonald. He was the pastor. He had been the pastor of this mega church that sort of grew to become huge, and then he was the president of World Vision and, you know, over their $200 million budget. And then he was the president of InterVarsity Fellowship. And I remember reading in Ordering Your Private World how he talked about one of the things that he did was he guarded his marriage. And he talked about how that was the one place where he felt almost certain that he wouldn't fall into sin. Now, what was uh, absolutely and profoundly ironic about reading that in Ordering Your Private World is the very next year it came out that he had been involved in an extramarital affair right? And what was interesting is they interviewed one of his best friends, a man named Vernon Grounds, and this is what Vernon Grounds had to say. He said, one more conspicuous casualty in the never-ending battle all of us carry on against evil within and without, right? Again, 
this evil is within you. This sin is within you. It's, it's, it's hunting you. It's ambushing you. Here's what McDonald had to say. McDonald said, a person's world breaks when their spirit is violated by temptations from without or by strange stirrings from within. In other words, what both of them were talking about was that this enemy, there, there is, are senses in which there are enemies that exist outside of us, but the most dangerous enemy is the enemy that resides within us, that sin is this predator that ambushes us, that seeks to destroy us. The question is for all of us and for you this morning, how is sin hunting you? Right? How is sin hunting you specifically, particularly? How is it seeking to ambush you? Second thing we see, or we're going to look at in this, is that sin is a powerful and subtle predator that isolates us and destroys us. We're going to focus just for one second on the power of sin. Here's what Romans 3 says. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Interesting way to phrase it. The power of sin, this internal energy that seeks to destroy. James 1 says this, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. But again, the picture there that James uses is being dragged away by this predator that's strong enough to drag you away, the power of sin, the sinful nature that resides within us. It's not some faint desire, right? It's not some feeble pull. Rather, our sinful nature, this sin that resides within us, is a powerful and active energy that drives and moves and draws us, right? Philosophers have understood this for years. Plato, uh, long, long ago, had an illustration of a charioteer and horses. And he was talking about the rational mind versus sort of the physical body. And psychologists would talk about it differently now. But essentially what he was saying is, he was saying the horses obey the charioteer, but the moment they want to take over, the charioteer can do nothing to stop them. John Haight, who is an NYU ethics professor and psychology professor, John Haight is his name actually, um, uses the illustration of an elephant and a rider. And so we see this picture up here. We see the teeny little rider up on the back of this massive elephant. And uh, what he's basically arguing is the same thing that Plato was arguing years and years before, which is that there's this part of us that's so strong and it's so powerful that every now and then uh, it lets the rider direct it and move it around, but the moment that big, powerful elephant wants to take charge, the rider can do nothing to stop it, right? And again, part of what's being illustrated here is the power of sin, right? That's what Paul is saying. It's what James is saying. It's what Height is saying. They wouldn't say sin. They would say some other things. What's amazing, however, is that those who feel the full force of the power of sin are not the people that give into it over and over and over again, but rather the people that feel the power of sin are the people who try to stand against it. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says this, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. I remember reading this quote my senior year in college and just resonating with me. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. 
We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist, right? Sin is a predator, right? But it's a very powerful predator that seeks to devour and to destroy you. How is sin hunting you? How is sin hunting you? Third thing, sin is a powerful and subtle predator that isolates us and then destroys us. Let's look just for a moment at the subtlety of sin. This Genesis chapter 4 passage, again, it, it uh, paints this picture of sin hiding, camouflaged, right, in wait, crouching in order to spring. Like any good predator, sin is effective because so often we can't see it, right? We don't see it until it's too late. The rest of Scripture affirms the subtlety and the deceptiveness and the camouflage of sin. A couple more verses, Romans 3, verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscious of our sin. That's exactly what Joel talked about this morning, right? We thought we were great till all of a sudden we kept realizing that we kept breaking and couldn't keep the law. Romans 7, for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. Again, there's this, this idea of it being invisible. It's deceptive. It's camouflage. It's hard to see. Uh, when I was um, in my first year at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, here I'm, you know, I'm 23, I'm working on my Master's of Divinity to become a pastor, and I've, I've told any number of you guys this story before, <clears throat> but I remember hearing Brian Chapel, the president of Covenant Seminary, uh, basically saying this. He was basically saying, it's not what you do that makes you acceptable to God, nor is it what you have done that makes you unacceptable to God. What makes you acceptable to God is what Christ has done for you. It's, in other words, it's the perfect life of Christ, his death and resurrection, his perfection. That's what makes you acceptable to God. I grew up at a Christian, uh, a wonderful church. I grew up in the youth group. I went to a Christian school through eighth grade. I went to Covenant College. I mean, like I was surrounded by Christianity. I probably had heard the gospel, you know, a thousand times. And, uh, and yet, as a 23-year-old, it was almost like I heard the gospel for the first time. Because when I was in high school, you know, I defined myself and basically argued to God, hey, God, you should accept me because I don't hook up with girls, I don't drink, I don't do this, I don't lie, I don't do all these things, therefore, you'll accept me, right? And then I got to college, right? And when I got to college, I was surrounded at Covenant College by a lot of other people that also didn't do the same bad stuff that I hadn't done. And so all of a sudden, I was faced with this decision like, well, who am I now? And so I decided to define myself by what I did do. And so I you know, volunteered with uh, an organization called Student Venture, which is a little bit like Young Life. And I volunteered to be the editor of this thing called the Wittenberg Door, which is where different spiritual discussions happened at, at Covenant. And I worked with a youth uh, ministry at Lookout Mountain Press for two years. I did all these things. And again, what I was basically doing is I was basically saying, all right, I'm not doing all this bad stuff. And I am doing all this good stuff. And then I stood before God and I said, I'm good enough, right? You're going to take me, right? I'm in. And what I didn't realize was the subtlety of my sin. Because what I was fundamentally saying was, the sacrifice of your son Jesus isn't enough, right? It's not enough. I've got to add some more to it. I've got to make sure not to put too much back in it. Fundamentally, God, I don't believe that your son Jesus' perfect life, 
death and resurrection is enough. It's a subtle, subtle sin. Right? C.S. Lewis, because he's great, says this. He says, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Right? You can get there any number of different ways. Like you can do drugs and you can have horrible uh, ways of relating to other people, or you can just be self-righteous, a Pharisee like I was. What matters is edging the man from the light and into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Sin is subtle. How is sin hunting you? Fourth point, sin is a powerful and subtle predator that isolates and then destroys us, right? How does sin isolate us? When Jesus, and actually it's interesting, again, we talked about this morning, but when Jesus asked what the greatest commandment was, he answered, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. And so the implication of Jesus' summary of the law versus not keeping the law, but his summary of the Ten Commandments is he's basically saying that sin is harming your relationship with God and your relationship with your fellow man. That's, what, that's one of the facets of what sin is. One of the most powerful pictures of this type of relational sin that Jesus ever uses, and we're going to actually probably get into it in a couple weeks, is the story of the prodigal son, right, which shows the eventual result of sin as isolation from the father and isolation from others. In other words, sin isolates us. In the story of the prodigal son, at the end of it, the boy is alone, right? He's on his hands and his knees in the mud feeding pigs. He's apart from his father. He's apart from all the meaningful people that would protect him, and he's starving. He is isolated and alone. My sophomore year at Covenant College, um, I was sitting in a, a room on Second Central, second story of uh, Carter Hall, and I was sitting there with a, a group of guys, and one of the guys, Marshall Brock, brought up the fact that, that uh, though his dad was a wonderful, godly man, he said, my dad doesn't really have any, any real friendships, right? I mean, he's got acquaintances, but not friendships. And so we vowed then, sitting there as 20-year-olds, we said, well, hey, let's be with each other for the rest of our lives. Like, let's be for each other. Let's fight for each other. And in the room that night, there were probably, I don't know, seven or eight of us at the time. And, uh, and it's interesting. I just actually got a, um, a text last night. Chris and I were on a date in Atlanta um, that one of the guys that was part of that group originally is um, divorcing his wife. We just found out this yesterday. One of the other guys that was in part of that original group is a different guy during the first sort of six months that we met together, we were meeting regularly, and we were sort of keeping each other accountable, and it was very uh, immature and very ham-fisted, but we were trying. And uh, this guy that was in the group originally, you know, was a great guy, good friend to us all. We all played soccer together, but we started, started noticing that he had been um, hanging out with somebody, I don't want to go into too much information, but hanging out with a young lady, and uh, he was basically sort of torn, right? He was in this tension between being in relationship with us, this group of, you know, seven or eight of us that were really trying to honor God and walk with the Lord, but he was also faced with the temptations um, that were afforded him through this other relationship. And so little by little, 
he drifted away until he just sort of withdrew from the group, and we tried and tried to sort of invite him back in, but I don't think he really wanted to be part of what was happening. And this is my group, you know, that now we're still together, you know, 26 years later. What's interesting is um, about three years ago, we were all up in Chattanooga for Christmas, and I ran into this guy for the first, I mean, I hadn't seen him in, you know, 15 years. And uh, man, I ran up and gave him a big hug. I was like, how are you doing? And he wanted to tell me the story that was just so sad and so terrible. And basically, his wife has left him. There's been drug issues. There's been some other issues that have gone on. And the decision that he made 26 years ago to really kind of allow sin to carry him away, to choose that, has left him now as a 46-year-old man, isolated, lonely, alone, and just sad. It was horrible. And I'm telling you, anybody in ministry can tell you, you see this over and over and over again, that sin ultimately isolates you and leaves you alone. How is, how is sin hunting you? Last thing, sin is a powerful and subtle predator that isolates and then destroys you. Here's what James says. We're going to go back to James 1. Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death, right, to destruction. Here, James employs similar imagery of sin as a predator, being dragged away. We're dragged away by our own evil desire, by our sin. The picture here is of a predator having gotten its claws into its prey and then dragging it away into the bushes to devour it. James says that sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. A few years ago, I used the illustration of uh, this jaguar uh, that hunted a crocodile, and you can see a picture of it right there. But it was this very interesting footage, and uh, basically, the, it's filmed from far away, and as you're far away, this, this eight-foot-long crocodile is out on a little peninsula in this muddy river, and you can sort of see the jungle behind it, and behind it, you see a jaguar making its way along the shore, and uh, it's actually stalking the crocodile. And so it gets around behind the crocodile, and it slips into the water. And so all you can see is sort of the, the jaguar's head, and he's swimming over. He comes up to the shore, and you think, man, this is great. This is not a good idea, jaguar. <coughs> and, uh, but the jaguar jumps up out of the water onto the back of this crocodile. The crocodile tries to get out of the way, but the jaguar sinks its fangs into the, the crocodile's head right behind its, uh, right behind its head, and it carries the, the crocodile off like it's a snicker bar that it just bought at the 7-Eleven. It's, am- I mean, it's, it's amazing footage. In fact, uh, if you want to go check it out, I do kind of recommend it. It's amazing. <laughs> but then the jaguar doesn't, doesn't stay on the shore. The jaguar jumps into the water, right? This is the crocodile's territory. He jumps into the water, swims back across this section of the river, and drags it up into the woods and eats it. That's amazing. Like, it's absolutely amazing, right? So how does sin lead to death? How does sin seek to devour you? Again, there's so many different facets of this definition of sin, and we're going to get into a couple of them over the course of the next four weeks. But one of those facets is saying, I'm going to determine for myself what's right. I'm going to determine for myself what's good. I'm going to determine, you know, for myself how I'm going to live life. And throughout Scripture, we're told over and over and over again of that way, the result of that way of sinning, of, of thinking is, is death. James says it here. 
Genesis 4 implies it. The Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man but leads to death. Sin has the power to destroy you and to destroy others. How is sin hunting you? How is sin hunting you? There's more evidence for this entity, this energy within us than just about anything else on the planet. It cannot be denied. It is hunting you and it seeks to destroy you. You guys remember at the very beginning I told the the story of the mother humpback whale and the calf humpback whale being hunted by these killer whales. And I told you that the, the way, or what ended up happening in the story, I'll go ahead and give it away, is that this, uh, this calf survived, right? It's really amazing because you didn't, it didn't look good. And the way that the calf again survived was the mother swam up underneath the calf and raised its body up out of the water so that these whales couldn't get to it. And so the, the whales eventually swam off, and they gave up, the killer whales. <clears throat> this morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so <clears throat> on my right, there are tables with bread and wine, and on my left, there are tables with bread and grape juice. What we have to understand about this meal is this meal that we call the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist is very much Jesus saying, climb on my back, and I'll protect you right, from sin from death. And so what I would like to invite you to do today is I would like you to remember the gospel. And the gospel is that your salvation, your protection from death and from sin, from hell, is not in your own strength. It's not in your own goodness. Rather, it's in Jesus who gave himself for you, who put himself between you and the threat in order to save you, though it eventually cost him his life. And so what this meal means today is that you are safe, right? If you trust in Jesus alone as your Savior, then you are safe, right? And so I would invite you to take that meal this morning, to take that bread and dip it into the wine, and remember the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf. And just one more thing, two more things. One, that this meal is not for people who don't trust in Jesus alone. It is for people who trust in Jesus alone for their salvation, but it's just not for people who haven't come to that point yet. And so that's not intended to be offensive, but this is a family dinner, right, that reminds us of Jesus sacrificing himself for us. The other thing that I would like to offer to you is this morning we have uh, elders in the church, and if they want to come up front after or during the Lord's Supper, they'd be willing to pray with you. And then there are other people in the church as well um, who love the Lord and who know the Lord, and I'd invite you guys to come up and to pray with people if they desire to be prayed with as well. But before I set you free to receive and to take the Lord's Supper, let me read the words of institution, and then I'll pray. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us um, a diagnosis. I thank you for revealing to us our sinful nature, this energy within us that seeks to harm us and 
to separate us from you and from others. And Father, I pray that you would enable us to see how evil is hunting us, how sin is a predator that seeks to destroy us. But Father, this morning as we begin or prepare to take the Lord's Supper, I pray that we would see um, that you and your son Jesus, that you're more powerful than any predator, that you're more powerful than any enemy. And so, Father, let our hope and our strength and our trust and our life be found in you and in the sacrifice of your son Jesus today on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.